Let me give you just a little bit of a setup for what's happening as our text opens up. You remember that Peter, James and John, excuse me, Peter and John had healed a man who was lame and begging that was sitting at the gate beautiful in the temple. And it caused a commotion. And this commotion caused the captain of the guard and the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin were different than the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin were the aristocrats. The high priests were Sanhedrin. The priests were Sanhedrins. And they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. And they couldn't find the resurrection in the first five books of the Old Testament. In our last study, I showed you where Jesus showed them where the resurrection was in those first five books. But now all of a sudden, they have Peter, when he realizes people are looking at him like he's the miracle worker, Peter says, why are you looking at me? It's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, who God rose from the dead, that this man stands before you well. This causes a problem for the Sanhedrin. They don't believe in a resurrection. And now you've got a guy that's been healed, who's been lame his entire life, and it is a sign that someone is raised from the dead. Now, the Sanhedrin are going to try to stop it. That's what this whole text is about. They are trying to stop the spread of the gospel. At this point, there are 5,000 men. It's gone from 120 in the upper room to 5,000 men. That doesn't include women and children. John MacArthur, at this point, believes there's as many as 20,000. Even if that's too big, you've got 10, 12, 15,000 men, women, and children who are now believers very early on and they're trying to gain control. How easy would it have been for them had they gotten the body of Jesus to stop this from happening? They could have said, you say this guy's made well by Jesus who was resurrected from the dead? Here's his body. And it would have killed everything. But of course, they can't produce the body. And so they've got to figure out a different way to be able to handle it. And it's in the name of Jesus that has caused them to be arrested. They are teaching something that is different than, than Jehovah, than the Old Testament. So now they've been arrested by the Sanhedrin. So you could picture a courtroom. They're like the Supreme Court in the Old Testament. And Peter and John are in the midst of them. Let's consider a couple of verses about the name of Jesus because there is power in the name of Christ. And it's nothing magical about the name of Jesus. And just, we need to understand that. We're not saying Jesus as in, when I speak the name of Jesus, there's magic that happens. When I call out upon Jesus Christ, it's him behind his name. If we have somebody that's here on security and something happens and I call their name to go handle the situation, I don't believe there's any magic in the name of Steve. I just think Steve's burly enough and got the skills. He can go handle the situation. So I'm, I'm asking for who he is to come and help. Nothing magical in the name. So when I call on the name of Jesus, it's who he is behind the name, not magic in it. Philippians tells us, Philippians 2, 9 and 11, there, uh, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. In John 14, 13 and 14, we're told, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified. There's the qualifying statement, that the Father may be glorified, 
If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's very broad, but God is to be glorified. It's not me getting the name of Jesus so I can get a better car or a nicer house or an airplane if I want it. As, as pastors have taken these passages and misapplied them, it's me using the name of Christ to get things done that Jesus wants to do. That's the power of calling out upon the name of Christ. And also him using compassion in our lives. That as we have needs, as we have struggles, as we have difficulties, he answers prayers like that. Not all of the time. Sometimes God's got a plan that you would go through a difficulty rather than be delivered from them. Personally, I would rather have God deliver me from them then use them to cause me to grow deeper. But God's got other ideas. And God does what God wants to do, not what Robert Furrow wants to do. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, we're told, now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, and we're taught to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. As Christians, we submit to the will of the Father. We never try to manipulate God to my will, but we always submit to his will. And after healing this man, Peter wants to make sure that Jesus gets the credit because they're looking at him and Peter's like, it's not me. In Acts 4.10, it says, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man stands before you whole. So God has a purpose for the healing of this man who has been lame for 40 years. That it would point to the resurrection of Christ. That people would see in the name of Jesus who is raised from the dead, this man is standing before you whole. In, and, and this is important because the Sanhedrin, of course, are, are denying it. In Ephesians 2, 20 and 22, it says, having been built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This miracle is continuing the work of Christ on. The Messiah was going to do miracles. The, the apostles did more miracles than are done today. I'm going to say per person, there are miracles today, and we talked about that a few weeks ago, but there were some signs done by the apostles because they are the bridge between the spoken words of Christ and the written words of the apostles. The apostles were chosen to write the word of God, and we have miracles like this and unusual miracles we will read about in the book of Acts that reveal that there's power in the name of who these apostles are. These early miracles especially were a sign of their apostleship. God will do miracles throughout the entire church age for different reasons. He was showing that they have the authority to give us the written word. And the apostles who did miracles have given us the written word of God. And this miracle is one of those examples. So we pick it up in verse 13. They're in, there, they're, they're, they're in this, um, it's like the Supreme Court. They're standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled 
and realize that they had been with Jesus. So when they look at these fishermen from Galilee, these aren't guys that have gone through their classes. God's going to raise up a man who has been, and that's going to be Saul or Paul of Tarsus, who has been through all of their classes, who's been through all of their education, who understands the Old Testament really well, and he will write 13 books in the New Testament. These guys will write their books as well. They're uneducated. It doesn't mean they were illiterate. That's a leap that they take, that they were illiterate, that, that they didn't have any kind of training, that they couldn't read. In their day, they were very well trained. They went to synagogues. They read in synagogues. They were taught to read. They knew the word of God. It becomes evident that Peter knew the word of God. So the fact that they were uneducated and untrained, people take a leap and go, well, they were illiterate. And how did these illiterate men write the New Testament? Well, partially they had some help. Luke, who was a physician and well-trained, interviewed the people around Jerusalem and wrote a very orderly work of the life of Jesus in the book of Luke. And we're studying the book of Acts now, which was written by Luke, who was a physician who was well-trained. John Mark, who was younger than Peter, is the one who wrote the book of Mark. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but the book of Mark was given to him by Peter. So he's writing Peter's account. So it wasn't like they didn't have help. But notice they marveled, these men, uneducated, untrained, and they realized they'd been with Jesus. There's a transformation that happens when you spend time with Christ. And I love that. Just a couple weeks ago, a gal come up to me after the service and said, my friends now are noticing. I used to be that every other word out of my mouth was F this and F that. And now I'm not cussing and they're amazed. That's a transformed life. People around us see us changed. When we come to Christ, they notice that we have been with Jesus. Um, I heard someone say once, uh, preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. We live our lives in such a way that people see Christ in us and a changed life is undeniable. There are people who believe that people can't change, but God's in the business of transforming people. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away and everything becomes new. And I've shared with you before, when I got saved at 14 years old, how I became a different person. All of a sudden, I wanted to know the word of God. I wanted to go to church. I wanted to, I wanted to know more about God. And that hunger is still around to this day. I still, on my off times, will spend time studying things that I want to know more about, that I want to learn more about. God had transformed me. Now, in verse 14, it says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Now, they want to bring them up on charges of blasphemy because the temple is there for Yahweh. And now they're preaching in the name of Jesus. And so they want to bring them up on blasphemy charges. But there's a guy that had been lame who's healed. So how can they bring him up on blasphemy charges when something good has been done? And you remember that Peter brought this up in our study last week. 
He said, men and brethren, if we are being charged because this man who was weak is now whole, let it be known to you that it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, that this man stands here before you today, which couldn't have made him happy. That didn't make him happier. But it's true. What are they going to do? Are they going to flog them? They could. To flog them was an open flogging. They would stretch them out on the ground and then beat them with rods. Both Romans and the Jewish authorities flogged openly with rods. The Romans would scourge. They stoned people. We'll get that in a couple of weeks. Well, in a few a couple of chapters, we're going to have the first martyr of the church, Stephen. And in a couple of chapters after that, the first apostle to die. So persecution's on its way. This is the beginning of it, and it's on its way. So they're trying to figure it out. So in verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go aside, so they moved Peter, James, and John out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do with these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them. It is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it but so that it spreads no further. Notice this is their goal. We want to stop it now. We already got 15,000 people following Jesus in Jerusalem. Let's get this thing to, to stop. So it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak no longer in this name. Now Jesus said, go out into all nations baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all I command you. And, and here they say, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Which one do you think they're going to choose? And they're trying to suppress it, and, and they're going to step their game up. They're not going to change tactics. Sometimes when something isn't working, it's better to change tactics to try to handle it. They, they threaten them. When that doesn't work, they threaten them more. When that doesn't work, they beat them. When that doesn't work, they kill Stephen. When that doesn't work, they kill, kill John. And this persecution continues. And then Saul of Tarsus gets involved and they leave Jerusalem. Now, now the gospel which had been contained in the city of Jerusalem suddenly spreads to Antioch and Damascus and as far into Rome within a generation. In other words, God uses the persecution of these men to spread the gospel. God is using them. God uses the ungodly to even get his purposes done, which is an amazing thing. Their desire, let's stop the spread of this. God's like, you're going to persecute them and they're going to they're flee. And when they flee, they're going to take the message of the gospel with you. That's one of the reasons the gospel spread throughout the entire world within a generation. Which on a side note is the reason that a consensus of biblical scholars, not just biblical scholars, historians, say that Jesus being born, being crucified under Pontius Pilate and having an empty tomb is one of the most well-known events in uh, attested to historical events in history. Not, not that he rose from the dead, but that the tomb was empty. Because the gospel spread around the world within a generation. How did this happen 
if it wasn't for the life of Jesus. And we know from other historians, Roman and Jewish, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And we know the tomb was empty because they could have just showed the body of Jesus. They could have killed it in infancy if they would have bought the body of Jesus out. They're not saying he rose from the dead. These are secular historians who say that. But now it's going to spread through the world and it spreads through persecution, which I don't know about you. I'd rather not have persecution. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He said, consider it joy when you are persecuted. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Every once in a while, someone will come up to me and go, they're persecuting me at work. They're, it, it's horrible. And, and I say, well, Jesus said rejoice. And they're like, but, but that's really bad. Are they spitefully using you? Yes. He said, pray for those who spitefully use you. Bless those who curse you. God uses these persecutions for his glory. Would we choose a different way? Probably. The Bible says God is not a man, that he does things the way man does things. God's ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above the earth. We would say, let's do something else. Let us, let us get together a marketing team. Let's go out and really spread the news about Jesus in a marketing way. Let's forget about all this persecution stuff. So they're going to try to stop the spread. So that it spreads no further, they say in verse 17, let us severely threaten them that they speak no more in the name of Jesus. Verse 18, so they called them and commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. You tell us not to do these things. God told us to do it. You be the judge. And so from here on out, they're going to send them out. But here we run into what some critics see as a dilemma, that the Bible clearly teaches that we as Christians are supposed to obey all authority. You know we're supposed to pray for those who are in authority, and I hope you're doing that. But the Bible also says obey those who are in authority, obey all of those who are in authority. And the critic will say, you as Christians have a problem because you're supposed to obey those who are in authority. And then uh, there are people in authority telling you to do something that God doesn't want you to do. So you guys are in trouble. By the way, this is one of the lamest arguments by any critic ever, because it's obvious that God is the higher authority. And if God's the authority that has put governments into authority, then we will always listen to God, who's the higher authority than the one that's under it. And it does not create a problem for Christians. They think they've got you. Aha, we've got you. Well, we know that that's not the case. But listen to what it says in Romans 13, 1 and 2. You know, God created the family unit. God created the church and God created government. And sometimes we don't think about God creating government, but God created government, not always so that those who were in charge could do good things, but sometimes it's judgment that comes through government. Sometimes those who were in charge bring judgment upon a nation. In Romans 13, 1 and 2, we're told this, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, this is Paul writing to the Romans. This is Romans 13. Who's the governing authority? 
the, the, the emperors. And at this particular time in history, they were out there. We're, we're getting to, to Caligula and some of the other really wild uh, emperors. He says, let every soul be subject to the authorities, for there is no authority except from God. God's the one who puts men into authority, and we trust that. And it goes on to say, and, and the authority that exists are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So you can see why they try to use this verse. It's pretty heavy. If I go against the authority, I'm bringing judgment on myself. In other words, it's very simply saying, if I go out and break the law and I end up in jail, well, that's what's going to happen because these guys are in authority for what they are there for. Now, if they give a law that says I have to do something that I see violates my conscience before God, for example, you have in California now, they're passing laws that pastors have to marry everyone whether or not they're heterosexual. And so if a pastor decides you're not heterosexual, in all good conscience, I can't marry you because a marriage is between a man and a woman. That's what a marriage is. Biblically, for this reason, a man, shall leave, a man and a woman shall leave the father and mother and the two shall cleave together and become one flesh. If they refuse, then they could be thrown in jail. So they might be thrown in jail because they refuse. And... I, this, may, this may spread beyond California, but right now it's something very real that they're thinking, you know what, I may stand up for God here and we may have people being jailed pretty soon because they're standing for principles. Now, 1 Peter 2, First uh, Peter talked about it in 1 Peter 2, 13 and 15. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of men for the Lord's sake. Notice again, it's for the Lord's sake that we're submitting to the ordinance of men whether to the king supreme, to the governors, to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Why did God make government? For the punishment of evildoers. Government is, and the army, the government is a gift to us to be able to keep us safe from evildoers that are in the world. And so Christians who say that men who are in the military are in sin or men that are in law enforcement are, are in sin. They're not, they're doing what is wrong. God has put them there for us to protect us. It's a gift from God for each one of us. And if you are in the military, you run into some Christian who tells you that you shouldn't be in the military for whatever reasons. Just be comforted to know 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 15, you are a gift from God to keep people safe. It goes on to say, and these are sent by him for the punishment of the evildoer and for the praise of those who do good. And this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, as Christians, don't go out doing things that are bad. Do the things that are good. Now, as I said, the critics will often say that we're in some kind of a dilemma, which we know we're not. We know that God's the highest authority. We're always going to obey God. But let me give you a few examples of people that, that disobeyed authority in the Bible, okay? 
First of all, we have Paul. Paul, first of all, becomes a Christian in Damascus. He starts debating people in Damascus. He's so good because he knows the Old Testament so well. He's a Pharisee. Pharisees memorize the Old Testament. He's arguing Jesus as the Messiah from the Old Testament, which, by the way, I think we as Christians should learn how to do, at least learn the main passages so we can do the same thing. And finally, they send a guy to arrest him. They hire a guy to go and arrest and find Paul. So Paul, in giving his testimony, says in 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, in Damascus, the governor under Artis, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. Now, I don't want to be let down. I have a fear of heights. I don't want to be let down. If any of you guys are like me, I don't want to be let down in a basket in a wall. But, but, but he, there's a garrison that wants to arrest him and he avoids them completely. In Matthew 2, 12, when the wise men go to see Jesus as a, as a boy in Bethlehem, Herod says, come back and tell me when you find the child so I can worship them. In Matthew 2, 12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. God gave them a command in a dream to avoid going to Herod. It would have been bad for them had they gone. In Acts 5, 29, it says, but Peter and the other apostles, this is a couple chapters ahead of us, one chapter ahead of us, when they get arrested and, and beaten, then Peter and the others answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. In chapter four, he said, you tell us, should we obey God or men? In, in, when it comes down to being punished, they say, we will obey God over man. In Hebrews 11, I love this one. Moses' parents have been commanded to throw every baby in the Nile River. And then it says, by faith, this is Hebrews 11, 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful baby. Does that mean if it was an ugly baby, it would have been like, in the river you go. Look at this beautiful baby, let's hide him. Whoa, what an ugly baby, throw it away. It looks like E.T. It says, and they were not afraid of the king's command. And of course, you know the story, right? They make a little ark, they float it down the river, the princess gets it when they see him crying. It says they noticed he was so beautiful that they adopt him and he's raised in Egypt, schooled in all of the things of Egypt and becomes the deliverer. Daniel was told not to pray anymore. There was a group of men out for Daniel. They knew Daniel prayed every day. They went to the king and they said, make a command that people can only pray to you. And here's what it says in Daniel 6.10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in the upper room with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks to God as was his command, or, or excuse me, as was his custom from early days. This wasn't a protest by Daniel. Daniel didn't go, you guys signed that, and now I'm going to go protest and pray. He's just doing what he always did. It was his custom. He was like, I'm not going to change it, <coughs> excuse me, because the law has been, been given. Exodus 1.17. This again is the midwives who have been told to kill the male babies in Egypt. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. This becomes very easy for us. They commanded to kill the male babies. They don't kill them. Now they go to the, the midwives and they say to them, why aren't you killing the male babies? And they say, well, the Egyptian women, I mean, the Hebrew women are like the Egyptian women. And they give birth to their babies before we get there. So what are we going to do? Now, that's an outright lie. We were just told they sold their babies together. So is it ever okay to lie? Yes. <laughs> I don't even know why this is a debate. If somebody comes in my house, my wife is hiding somewhere, and they say to me, you tell me where your wife is. Well, I'm George Washington. I can't tell a lie. She's in the back room. Sorry, honey. You know? <laughs> of course you lie, right? Of course, in order to protect lives, you lie. Sometimes you do a lesser evil in order for a better, for, in order to save a life or to do something that is better. This is life. Life is not always black and white. Life is not always cut and dry. That's for a whole nother sermon. So anyway, there's, there are some examples of people that disobeyed government and Peter and, and, and John are going to disobey and it's going to lead to a lot of persecution, but God's going to use that persecution to bring about good in their lives. Now, in our lives, the, the Bible says, don't think it's strange when you encounter fiery trials. The Bible says, consider it joy when you, you encounter various trials. Now, that's something I generally don't do. I want to do it. I'm working on it. But when I'm facing a difficulty and a trial in my life, I don't generally go, I'm supposed to consider this joy. So, oh boy. And did God have to say fiery trials? You know, don't, don't think it's strange when fiery trials come upon you. Couldn't it just be trials and not fiery trials? But the Bible teaches clearly that God is doing a work in your life through the trial. 1 Peter 1, 7 says your faith when tested by fire much more precious than gold to the glory, honor, and praise of God. God knows that through difficulties and struggles and trials, we develop a stronger character. Our faith grows. We become tougher and stronger when we go through trials. I wish that wasn't the case. I, but, but, but it's just such a, tr it's a, it's a truth among mankind. That's why when you go into the military, basic training isn't coddling you. They don't bring you in and say, oh, we want to make this such a nice time for you. We want you to be able to talk about how good things were for you for these eight weeks that you were here in basic training. That doesn't happen, right? Why? They don't want soft soldiers, right? And in fact, if you're too soft, they'll be like, get out. I'm done with you. Go, get out. They're, they're going to put you through some tests. They're going to put you through some trials. And you go, it doesn't make sense. They're making me do this one thing, then they make me dig a hole, then they make me bury it. That doesn't make sense because <clears throat> they want you to follow orders. <clears throat> They're using, and so God uses difficulties in our lives to do what God wants to do in them. And sometimes they're hard. Sometimes it's the unthinkable. Years ago, 11 years ago now or so, Greg Laurie lost his son, 32 years old, in an automobile accident. Um, Greg Laurie has put on Harvest Crusades and literally hundreds of thousands have come to Christ as, through his crusades. And so on the morning after he lost his son, he didn't preach. 
But he came out and he addressed his church and he said, I just want you guys to know that I'm going down a road that I would have never have chosen to go down. I'd have never have chosen this. But I will go down this road and I want you to know that I still believe. A couple weeks later, he preached a message where he said, when life is easy, you shine for Christ and that's good. But when you go down a road you don't want to go down, people watch you more to see whether or not you really believe what you believe. It's easy when you're not tried and tested to say, I'm living for Christ. But when you face difficult trials and hardships, are you still going to believe and are you going to shine for Christ even in the midst of those? And so God will spread the church throughout the world through difficulties, trials, persecutions, and martyrs. The early church spreads throughout the world because of these things. And we'll get that as we make our way through the book of Acts. Now let's wrap it up here. <clears throat> I'm a little bit late, verse 20. For we cannot but speak the things, he says, which we have seen and heard. So basically it tells them we're not gonna do it. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because the people, since all glorified God for all the things that had been done, uh, for the man was over 40 years old of whom the miracle of the healing had been performed. Now we're going to see how they respond to it next week. But I want to end with this account. Uh, when we started the church here, uh, Mark Martin, who's a pastor up in a Calvary chapel that's up in uh, Phoenix, and a, and a friend of mine, um, had one of his family members lose a child. And the family member went to our church and was at Davis Mothin. And so we were doing the service on Davis Mothin. And at that time, the commander of Davis Mothin was Islam. And the chaplain met with me and Mark before the service and said, listen, whatever you guys talk about, you cannot talk about Jesus or salvation by him or his sacrifice. So we have a chaplain telling us we can't do this. Well, I got fired up and I was like, can't tell us what we can say and can't say. Hey, look, we're doing, we're, you know, we're doing this for the Lord. We're not doing, you know, and, but, but Mark kind of taps me on the shoulder and he says, it's okay. And he looks at the chaplain and he says, thank you. And so the chaplain leaves. So I get up and do my part. And then Mark gets up after me to do his part. And Mark says, at a time that we lose a child and we realize death is inevitable, it's never better to know that we must trust our lives to Jesus Christ who gave his life for us upon he preaches the gospel. <laughs> he was like, he was like, he didn't tell him he wasn't gonna do it. He just said, thank you. He just like, you, you tell us we can't do it. Thank you for telling us that, but I'm doing it anyway. And that's exactly what they are. Now for us, what were they gonna do? What was the chaplain gonna do to us, right? We were in the military. So what was the chaplain gonna do to us? And I learned a good lesson that day that sometimes arguing isn't the best way to handle things, but just saying, thank you. Appreciate, appreciate you telling us that. <laughs> and then go ahead and do whatever it is that God calls you to do. Stand with me with you and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we're able to see that through persecutions and struggles that you established the church around the world. Their goal was to stop the spread of the church, but your goal was to use their persecution to put pressure that the church would be spread around the world within a generation. And so, Lord, we say to you, help our trials, help our struggles. Lord, all of us here have things that we would love you to intervene on.
Lord, we receive the difficulties and the struggles. We love you, we'll serve you no matter what. But we also know you said, ask and you shall receive. And so we do ask and we pray now that your Holy Spirit would help us that whatever your plan is, however you want to use our struggles, our difficulties, our lives for your glory, do that, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.